Hey everybody, I am here today with Nick Melnick. Uh, Nick is the Director of Business Development at Mint POS. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing well. How are you guys all doing? Yeah, we are just doing great over here. So uh, today, Nick and I are going to dive into a topic I've wanted to talk about for a long time, and that is I want to talk about the challenges that business owners are facing today with these older POS systems, um, and they, they really need to upgrade. They have to upgrade their software or something like that. And so you know, looking at Mint and looking at selling other things into this space. So before we get into that, though, Nick, uh, please give us a little bit of your backstory. Tell us how you got into the point of sales space and, and how you ended up at Mint today. I actually uh, started with uh, our parent company, which is POSIX. It's a, a hardware manufacturer 15 years ago. Kind of got that business up and running. We build all the point-of-sale hardware. We do the, the touchscreen monitors, the computers, the receipt printers, and all that. Right. And then about three years ago, we discovered that there was a, a kind of a niche, a need for a complete solution out there. So we brought software and hardware together and created uh, Mint POS. Wow, awesome. And now Mint POS has been around for quite a while, right? Yeah, about about three and a half years. I, okay. I came into it after about a year or so of it going. So awesome. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, Nick, we talk a lot on this podcast. We've talked a lot in the past about you know POS systems and and how to go into a merchant that's got you know a, a VX five twenty or an Ingenico terminal and say, hey, you know, here's the reason why you need a you know, point of sale system. Here's why you need, you know, a Clover or a Mint or whatever. But, you know, really, I want to talk about this opportunity of these merchants that have older POS systems. So why is it such a big opportunity, in your opinion, for agents and ISOs to target these merchants that are maybe larger, but they've got these old systems? Why is that such a, a big opportunity today that we need to take advantage of? I mean, the first off, the first one is PCI compliance. I mean, if they're older systems, you're not going to have the EMV. You're not going to have, uh, you know, up-to-date operating systems. I mean, prime example is Windows 7 just stopped getting updates. So if they're not getting the updates, they're, they're not as secure as they could be with a new current modern POS system. Sure. Other things is there's, there's new uh, things out there like cash discounting or surcharging, depending on where you're at. Uh, so, And it's just the new technology of faster and better. As we all know, computers, right. every couple of years, they're getting more powerful, faster, smaller. It's just modernizing your your POS system. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's so interesting because like when I talk to agents, I'm always amazed at how many of them, you know, they literally will go into a business and if they see a Micros or an Eldelo, they literally just walk out, you know, like... I'm not going to mess with that. And it's like, wait a second, you know, or, you know, how old is that thing? You know, how long have they had that, you know? Um, and so a lot of times they, they just don't look at that. So, all right, so let's dive into some of these really specific ones because I know each vertical is a little bit different. I know Mint has um, very specific features in different verticals. So um, let's start off with fine dining, uh, full service restaurants. I know that's something that, you know, Mint is really heavy into. So what are a couple of the top features that you would say some of these older POS systems maybe are missing that these restaurant owners are looking for from newer solutions like like what Mint would have? I mean, one of the easiest ones is being able to work on the system remotely. So you have like cloud reporting, uh, being able to remote in. So if you're the manager, you don't have to go to the physical location. You can work from home, sure. set up your menu, make menu changes, schedule them to happen at X time in, in the future or right away. It's the ability to work remotely and not have to be at the physical restaurant location. Other things are order at the table, being able to oh, walk sure. around with an iPad and take the order while you're in front of the customer talking to them. KDS is kitchen display systems, uh, sure. online ordering. If it's, I mean, fine dining doesn't have a lot of, but there are still people who want to 
do online reservations, online ordering, or, or stuff like that. Sure, sure, absolutely. So, yeah, and I, and I think that's that's crucial. There's so many things there that that are crucial. And I think you mentioned one that is like a, a big hot button for me is talking to merchants about remote access. Um, I think mm-hmm. a lot of agents like they literally, if it, like if you've never had a small business, you don't understand how crucial that is. But it's like when you have you know a bunch of teenagers working for you at your pizza shop. And you have no idea what's happening with your business. It's very difficult for you to really unplug when you're at home with your kids, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. And so, the, yeah. And the nice thing about our system is we have the real time reporting. So if you are worried about, you know, those kids or whatever you're saying, you can look in, see who's deleting tickets, uh, how fast your turnovers happening and all that. And you could do that remotely. You don't have to run into the office every day and supervise and be right. this way you can have a life you know yeah, working exactly. from home yeah exactly so i'm sure a lot of these features probably do cross over is, is there anything with like let's say retail if you know we got a, maybe a multiple location or kind of larger retail is there anything there that that you see that's you know uh, maybe other hot buttons for them that maybe don't apply as much to the restaurants uh for retail it's some of the hot, one is mobile inventory so to be able to go around and do inventory on your shelves with a mobile unit some oh, of the sure. older systems don't have that or the system is really archaic so to be able to go around and do actual physical inventory counts or do physical scanning of the shelf to make sure all your pricing is up to date and to be able to do that remotely. Right. Yeah, that's a big one. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'll tell you a story, Nick, that always cracks me up. When I first got into selling POS, um, I went to this uh, place that was like a uh, four-location uh, place that sold uniforms for like nurses and, and you know, medical staff. Um, and so, you know, pretty good sized business, you know, four locations, they were doing a good amount, maybe 30, 40,000 a month per location in, in uh, volume. They were like the only shop that did this. And, um, so I went in there one day and I was talking to them about, you know, credit card processing and, you know, they're like, no, 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 we've switched 50 times. You know, we don't care about that. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about point of sale for a second. I said, how are you currently doing your inventory? And the owner <laughs> walked over and literally picked up a clipboard and said, one of my employees every week spends about six hours walking around with this clipboard and marking down everything, and we do that at each location, and then whatever we're missing, we order. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> so uh, needless to say, I sold them a point-of-sale system. Um, but yeah, I mean, the inventory stuff and then being able to go around and do that, you know, can you, can you give us a little more context? Like when you say they go around and use like a mobile phone like, or you know, a mobile device, what do you mean exactly? Like what are, what are they doing? So you can go out and scan the barcode, and it'll show you what you should have in inventory at the time. So if you still are doing an actual physical stock count, you can see, scan the barcode. Okay, I should have six of these in inventory. If you only have five, then you can do, you know, a a rotation to say one has been stolen or lost or something. So that way you can just, you don't have to keep running back and forth. And like you said, write it down on a piece of paper. Hope you can read your writing, go back, and then do all the data entry. You're doing the data entry right in front of your shelf. Another example is, as you said, some of these older places still have actual sticker prices. So there's a place right. around here that if you go to the back of the inventory, you will find the lower price item from back when they priced it, you know, six, seven, eight months ago. <laughs> so if you pull that out, this way, if you're not doing that, you can just barcodes, you can update and keep all your pricing current. You don't have to make sure that someone's right. gone through and relabeled all your inventory. So what, So it sounds like what you're saying is there's this problem where a retail business may have put an old price. And if you just have like a Sam's Club cash register, you're looking at the actual price on the item instead of scanning the barcode and, and actually looking at what price you currently have in the system. Right. And you're losing margin right there yeah. because 
your employee or your didn't get to that one and it's got an old price tag on it. Sure, sure. Now, one business type I, I actually, the other one I was thinking of here that I kind of skipped over, but, you know, we talked about the fine dining. What about other food service like, say, bars, you know, pizza shops, kind of quick service type stuff? Are there other features there that you see that the older systems might not have? Uh, online, integrated online ordering. So you can, sure. or, so you can, you know, somebody can go in, put, place the order online, and it'll shoot right into your POS instead of having them, you know, having to call in and say, hey, I'd like to order this pizza. Please, you know, have it ready for so-and-so. It'll have the customer information on that. We have caller ID in there, so it'll even recognize their phone number and bring their account right up so you don't have to take their information. It'll, it'll do them based off their phone number. Uh, app-based delivery is a big one now, so that's something we're coming out here with really shortly. I was just really about to ask you about that. Yeah, let's let's definitely talk about that. It's funny. I was I was just about to say I got a question for you here that I you know off the wall, but yeah, tell us more about that, please. So I mean, right now you have. 50 different companies and if, if you've gone into these restaurants with the app based if it's not integrated their pos system there'll be like six seven eight nine ten tablets sitting there for uber eats for this other one and all the orders will come into those and if it's not integrated then they'll have to hand enter it into the pos system right so you're doing double entry there we, we are now integrating here shortly to where all these will flow directly into the point of sale system yeah that's that's awesome so you know just to clarify what you're talking about here is like you know doordash and uber eats and all the others where People are going on their app on their phone or whatever. I do it all the time, and they're ordering food for delivery there. And so all of these restaurants, they're running into this problem where it's like it's like a, almost like a whole different form of payment in a way. It's like they need to accept all these orders from all these different platforms so they don't lose any business. But what it sounds like you're saying is right now that's usually being done on separate devices, and a system like Mint mm-hmm. can, can actually integrate that all right into their system so it goes right into their normal yes. delivery orders and stuff. Correct. Correct. Yes, you're not doing the double entry. You don't have six tablets out there. And obviously, if you have this many different ways of ordering, orders can get lost pretty easy. Sure. Okay, cool. So, all right. So I want to transition a little bit. So we're talking about features and, and things like that. And again, I think there's a lot of, lot, obviously a lot more we could talk about. It's, um, I, I guess the one thing I would say in, in kind of my, my perspective is that it's actually not terribly difficult to figure out um, what these businesses don't have. You know, asking a few questions about their business operations, you're normally going to find that. I think that the other big barrier, though, that a lot of sales reps and ISOs run into and why, you know, like all the point of sale providers are always baffled by, you know, why is it that, you know, 60, 70 percent of sales are still with, you know, standalone terminals? And a lot of it actually is the installation and the training and all of the things that go into that. And so one of the reasons I've always liked Mint and mentioned you guys on the podcast before is I really like your approach to installation and, and service. So can you talk a little bit about that of like, what do you guys do? How do you handle this? You know, a new restaurant signs up or whatever. How do you handle that from a support and installation perspective? Well, well I'll take it back. Even we help it with the sales process also. So my sales reps are here to help the people go out there. If they find a restaurant and they're not comfortable selling it, we'll get on and we'll do the demo with them or for them to talk to the merchant, find out their needs, right. make sure it's a good fit and all that. So we're the experts at that. We're here to help them do that. Then the next phase, once we sold it, we take our, our U.S.-based techs. They're all here in the, in the office. We'll, do, we'll get the menu in. We'll do the menu build. Then we'll do a menu review with, these, with the folks there. The next step, once the menu's been checked off, we'll do a remote installation. Our system is very easy to install. It's three or four cables. They're all color-coded. we got little pictures and all that. We've made it so it's very easy to install. We'll do the remote installation, and then we'll do two hours of training with the managers and the staff there to get them going. 
once all the training's done, they're up and live and running. We're there for 24-7 lifetime tech support. As long as they're an active customer, we're, we're here to help them. Like I said, everything is U.S.-based, so we're not farming it out. The same texts you talk to during the day are the texts you talk to after hours also. Right, right. Yeah, and, and several things you said there that I, I really want to, like, you know, zero in on for a minute for people that may not understand. So, mm. so number one, you mentioned the U.S.-based thing, meaning, you know, you guys actually have a call center. You're in Washington, right? We're in Washington State. Right. Okay. So yeah. you, you guys have your you have you know I know you have different offices and all that, but you know basically you have a U.S. based call center for support, and so you started off with the sales side of it. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is I'm a sales rep. I want to sell you know a larger establishment, and maybe they have specific questions about features or whatever. I'm not ready to have that mm-hmm. conversation. I can reach out to Mint, and Mint will will do that you know remote demo basically. We'll do the call. Yeah, we'll do the conversation for you. We'll do the demo. We'll ask all those questions that you may or may not be ready to ask yourself. We're there. We're there to help you guys. Love it. Awesome. Okay. And then once that sale is made, like, you know, you mentioned like a menu, I'm assuming that would also for retail, that would be like their, maybe their inventory list. Is that kind of the idea that you would kind of load their system up and make sure it's ready to go? Yeah. We found that most restaurants don't know how to set up a point of sale menu or inventory properly we're, we're we've done it a bunch of times so we're there to help them make sure it's set up correctly the first time so that they hit the ground running and they're not struggling with oh i forgot this oh i forgot that sure, so sure. we found it just easier for us to do it first the first time and then sit down and spend an hour reviewing with doing you know faux transactions with them then this is all done remote to make sure the system's working and operating the way their business operates. Sure, sure. Now, um, you know, and, and that's all awesome. And, and again, I've you know, I've got enough experience working with different ISOs that use Mint that I can validate that you know, you guys really do a good job with that. So, well done on that. It's really great. Um, so, I think the next question people would probably be asking is like, okay, but that's probably going to cost me like ten thousand dollars or something, you know, to get this all set up. So, let's talk about cost for a second. I know you can't get too specific because you've got you know different ISOs that you know you're a, a dealer for. They've got their own prices and stuff. But you know, just in general terms, can you give us a little a little bit of context here? Because I know a lot of these. Uh, businesses that have the older systems ironically these older systems that do less were actually like super expensive like six thousand dollars a station and stuff and then they've got you know a five thousand dollar software upgrade and things like that so can you talk a little bit about kind of the old pricing strategy and then moving into something like a mint you know how do these costs differ and how does the investment look for the business owner our, our costs are definitely way lower than that. I mean, you're looking anywhere from the thousand to $1,500 range per station. So you're, you know, not even a quarter of the price of the, of the legacy systems out there. Software upgrades you spoke about, all our upgrades are part of the, the monthly recurring fee. They're built in. There is no, you're on this version now to go to this next version, you have to pay this fee. We just do a monthly and you're, you're sub 100 on, on the monthly fee per station, depending sure. and being less for the additional stations, the first station being that. And that includes hardware warranty, 24-7 tech support, and all the software upgrades. And like you said, you guys do uh, you do hardware and software like it's it's all it's mint, right? It's not like a separate thing. Yeah, it's one yep one complete package that comes in one box. Everything's loaded on there, and that's the way we can make it. Is we know the hardware because we manufactured it. We we do the warranty, so there's no playing that. Well, it's the hardware's fault. It's the software's fault. It's one complete package. If there's an issue with the point of sale system, you're not playing bounce off the different vendors. You come to talk to us. We take care of it. Cool. You know, one other thing I just want to bring up, I just something I, I was thinking about the other day, and I, I went I went through a demo uh, with I think it was Eric from your office that you know went through a demo event before we did this, and um, you know one thing that really stood out to me about it is that 
you know, Mint is, is incredible. It has a lot of features. But one of the other things that I think is a plus that a lot of people don't understand is that a lot of sales reps are are actually tech savvy. In other words, you know, you got a lot of young guys and gals out there selling payment processing. They love the technology. And so they're always looking for that like sexy system. Like it should look so cool and it should look like a bunch of apps and all this stuff. And and those systems absolutely have their place. Don't get me wrong. Um, when they look at Mint sometimes, and I'll talk to people and they're like, oh, well, Mint, you know, it kind of has that, that old fashioned look to it, a little bit of the user interface, that very simple kind of just basic design. But the funny thing is that really plays to your advantage a lot because when you're actually going to upgrade these systems and you're like, hey, I know you've been using this system that looks a certain way. We want to totally change that and give you something that you've never seen before that you have no idea. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> the Mint system actually is like a sexy version of Micros. Like it's it does a lot of cool stuff. But correct me if I'm wrong here. Like it's to me when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, like if I'm a 60 year old business owner that's had a micro system for the last 10 years, Mint is kind of what I want. It's like I, I get it. It looks like a point of sale system. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it has all those bells and whistles you're looking for, but like you said, in a more contemporary standard-looking product there, yeah. Because if you go from working on micros to one of these fancier iPads, some some of your workers, their minds just they explode, yeah, and they, they just like, don't want to deal with it. Right. And that's what we like, found is you have to get these people to have the buy-in, and it's easier if it looks familiar. Yeah, exactly. There you go. You said it much better than I did. That's exactly what I meant. It's just, it does. It looks very familiar to the merchants that have had these legacy systems. So I think that's a big win. Okay. Last thing. And, and ironically, the, the reason that Mint got on my radar screen in the first place several years ago, um, is that, you know, I've been a big proponent of cash discounting and surcharging and things like that. And, you know, Mint has been like all about that seeming, I don't know, from day one, but pretty soon after, if not, can you talk a little bit about cash discounting, surcharging, where you're at right now with, with Mint, your commitment to that and, and how how that's working out with your with your merchants. I would say that is definitely a big focus of what we're doing. It's probably 80 to 90% of our business is cash discounting. It seems to be the big wave of the future. We do wow. we do cash discounting, surcharging and all in many different ways. So depending on the different rules or the different package you're with, everybody's kind of got their own little way. We yes. can set up our system to be very flexible to work with each company's way of doing it. So that we can, you know, if if they're doing true surcharging, we can do search, true surcharging. If they're doing cash discounting, we can do cash discounting. It's all based on different sales rules and all that. We can do tiered. We can do flat fee. We can do percentage. So however you guys need to go out there and sell it, we can pretty much work with it. Yeah, and I love it because I, I think it also really does kind of speak to the direction I see the industry going where it's like for a, for a while, cash discounting was kind of like a, an ISO thing. Like our ISO has cash discounting. And I think as as the, the idea has matured, I think most ISOs are starting to realize that really this is a technology thing. You know, we do flat rate pricing with a daily discount. You know, um, we have technology that can implement a cash discount. And so I, I think that's kind of the natural direction. And, you know, again, that's something I know you guys have been focused on early on. And like you said, there are so many variations. Some people want it a certain way. And so it sounds like, you know, with the settings you guys have, it's kind of that flexible system to do the cash discount really any way that they want. Yeah, we've definitely tried to make it as flexible as possible because, like you said, everybody's got their own little slight twist on it. Sure, sure. Now, one one side question on this. So uh, your your percentage kind of surprised me a little bit, actually, the 80%, 90% uh, of clients. Now, I know you guys do a lot of the full-service fine dining restaurants where there's, like, tip-adjust and things like that. Could you give us just a little flavor of, like, 
I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm a little surprised by that. I mean, are a lot of these fine dining, full service restaurants, they're going with the cash discount. And how is that? Have you run into any issues with it because of the tip adjust and kind of the confusion that, that surrounds that with cash discounting? Uh, we actually haven't run into too much of a problem. Sometimes some of the fine dining places have a little struggle at first with their customers, but we, you know, we try and talk with them and educate them on how you do the cash discounting and and why it's out there and explain you to the customer, what is the point of the cash discounting, you know, with the, with this, uh, credit cards and the big move to all the loyalty cards where you get in the air miles, the cash back and all it's explaining to the customer of the merchant that somebody has to pay for all this stuff. Right. And it, at 99% of the time, it's the merchant that's paying for it. But with cash discounting, now they don't have to raise their prices to pay for that. If someone wants to use a credit card, they pay that little bit of fee. If they don't want to use a credit card, they pay the standard pricing. Right. Otherwise, without something like this, everyone would just have to keep raising their prices to cover costs. Sure. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the pushback you get from the fine dining restaurants uh, is basically the same as you get from everybody else, which is my customers aren't going to like it, and you have to explain that actually that you know it's it's something where as long as you explain it to your customers correctly, it's it's not going to be a, a something that's going to change their yeah, buying it, decision. It, yeah, it doesn't seem to be an issue at all. And a lot of us, as we explained, it's like in most states, gasoline you pay crash cash price versus credit price. We've been doing it forever. It's just now moving into the rest of. Of right. the world here, right? So a couple, a couple interesting kind of trends or just thoughts about this real quick. That you know, I'm glad we're having this conversation because, you know, it's funny. There's still people in the industry that would say, "Oh, this is, uh, you know, this is never going to work. Merchants aren't going to go for it. They don't like it, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. You know, all evidence to the contrary. Um, it sounds like. You know, I mean, I know Mint's been doing this for a long time and has a lot of, of accounts. And I would imagine that those individuals, if they had to pick one business type that they're like, it definitely won't work for this business type. Honestly, most of them would say fine dining, <laughs> full service. So it sounds like what you're saying is even that vertical, you know, once it gets going, they seem to like it. It's not like you're having a wave of people that are sending back their Mint system or changing it because of the, the cash discount. Right, and if they don't like the cash discount, it's a few little things, and we can turn it off. Right. We very rarely ever do that, but that is an option. It's yeah. uh, it's undo a couple sales rules, and right. it's off. But I think less than 1% of the people we sell to ever turn it off. That's amazing. And the thing is, having the ability to turn it off is super important, though, because just telling them that, that's going to make them more apt to like, okay, cool, I'll give it a shot, because I know I can just turn it off if I need to. Correct. Yeah. You're not, you're not stuck in, oh, if it doesn't work now, this whole POS system is as of no use to me. No, we turn it off. It goes back to standard way of processing. That's awesome. Well, man, I tell you what, I think we could talk for another hour or so about all this stuff, but I guess we better, we better stop it here. So I know a lot of our listeners are going to want to know more about Mint, which of course is spelled M-Y-N-T. Um, where would you send these people that want to learn more? Uh, go ahead and you can go to our uh, website, www.mintpos.com. Or you can go uh, email us at sales at Mint POS or give us a call at 202-810-2000 and any of our sales guys would be happy to talk to you. It's no pressure sales. We're here to help you guys sell. And so that was Mint POS, which is M-Y-N-T-P-O-S.com. And then give us that phone number one more time. 202 202- Eight one zero two thousand. And I'm, and I guess we should have mentioned earlier on, but obviously Mint is a, uh, unlike some of the other POS systems out there today, Mint is is basically processor agnostic, right? Like you know, you work with a lot of different. We, we are one hundred percent processor agnostic. Awesome. We work with most everyone out there. We take care of the point of sale. We let you guys take care of the payment processing. Love it. Hey man, thanks so much, uh, Nick. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy. 
brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. You know, James, retailers uh, always seem to be complaining about the cost of card acceptance and, right. you know, good reason, obviously. Of course. And now it seems they're challenging the card brand's work uh, through EMVCO in setting card security standards. Okay. Now, I have to admit, um, I've always been a little bit, found it a little more than odd that the card security protocols are set by a third party that, in fact, is owned by the card brands. Right. Does right. seem a little interesting. A little interesting. And sure. Now, the... Uh, merchants are making a similar um, comparison. Quote, our payment system should be the strongest and most secure in the world, but we won't get there unless we change the way we set security standards, is how mm -hmm. NRF, the National Retail Federation, has put it. Okay. Now, NRF is part of a group that's calling itself the Secure Payments Partnership, and they just issued a report titled Payment Insecurity, How Visa and MasterCard Use Standard Setting to Restrict Competition and Thwart Payment Innovation. Now, that's not a long title. Wow, but it's actually, like I think it's but actually an interesting one. Very though. strong I mean, title. It makes their point. Yeah, yeah, it sure makes say. their point. Um, you know, I look specifically at EMV Co., which is owned by the large card brands, you know, all the b major card brands in the world. Right, right. right? Euro, the, is it Europay, MasterCard, Visa? Uh, yeah, well, that's how it originally started, but right. JCB is part of okay, it, American right. Express. Oh, okay. Discover, all they're right. all part of it, all right. but, sure. you know, and they all have an ownership interest of some sort. But, or but EMV stands for, for Europay, Europe MasterCard, or Visa. And Visa. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. Um, and then I think, wasn't Europay bought by MasterCard at one point. And oh, I didn't why, know that. Yeah, that was a f several years huh. back, and that's why it kind of... Yeah, okay. So, anyway, um, the report highlights, quote, a, uh, quote, systemic pattern of de decision-making by EMVCO, uh, including standards like chip card authorization by signature, that it says has led to diminished security and an increased risk of fraud. Hmm. The end result, they say, is increased dominance by the card brands, higher costs for merchants and consumers, and a, quote, fraud-prone payment system, close quote, that places U.S. merchants at a competitive disadvantage internationally. Now, EMV claim, you know, co claims that its main concern in life is setting technical specifications necessary to ensure interoperability. But the uh, specs have become a de facto standard set of standards with implications far beyond technical capabil uh, capability, as the report hmm. asserts. Um, here are a few of the specific complaints contained in the report. Chip and pin security has been, sty has been stymied in the U.S. by EMVCO, which issued standards supporting the use of chips with signature authorization. This despite the fact that chip and pin is the approach to card security used in most of the rest of the world. And um, According to the report, this was done to keep U.S. retailers from routing transactions through less expensive debit networks. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, that actually is a very, very interesting point. Now, see, I didn't when that when that happened. So let's 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 unpack this a little sure, bit for everybody. Sure. Mm-hmm. So what they're talking about is if you go to Canada right now and you go to Toronto and you sit down in a restaurant and you order your food in a fine dining restaurant, right? Uh, under no circumstance would a server take your card and go back to Correct. the back room. That does not happen ever. Ever. They have to bring a device to you, mm-hmm. and then that device you have to. You know, insert your card into that device, and then, and then you put your PIN number in. And so it's chip right. and PIN. Um, and so in the U.S. market, uh, the idea of chip and signature was introduced. Right. I thought that that was because the retailers in particular and the restaurateurs as well would not want to make the hardware shift. And that was kind of what I was led to believe when, yeah. this, when this all started. Now, according to these, you know, according to this report retailers would much rather have the pin. I guess that would make sense because for retailers, it wouldn't really matter. It'd be more restaurateurs, I guess, would be the only ones. Restaurateurs would be the one where that would would be a big problem because now they have to buy three additional pay-at-the-table tablet, you know, pay-at-the-table devices or something. Right, exactly. You'd have to have Mm. one for each of your servers, right? Sure. And I guess, I mean, for fuel stations, that wouldn't really matter. They have to replace everything anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So really... Yeah, it'd really just be your card not present stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's actually really interesting. I had never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, I thought okay. that was very interesting too. Right, what else do they claim? Uh, the tokenization standards they say also discriminate against debit networks. Um, and okay. that's you know I think it's the same kind of reasoning. Yeah, you know. Okay, here's a, another very interesting one: the uh, EMV code standards for uh, near field communications. You know, NFC for mobile payments. Sure. Has stymied competition for mobile payments. Uh, they say that the standards are less expensive, complex, and require difficult to implement technology. Uh, again, I, I do not claim I don't know to be a that. yeah exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't tar- claim to be a technologist, sure, so sure. I'm not as sure. Uh, but and, and this uh, this is another one I'm not I don't know a whole lot about. But this new secure remote commerce standard, which enables the creation of virtual payment tables, uh, t- terminals rather. Um, they say is going to make it more difficult for merchants to route debit transactions through the debit networks. And again, I think this all goes to the the root thing is that EMV standards in the U.S. are based on chip and signature. Yeah, but you know, I, I just I really have to kind of. This is so interesting, uh, you know, and I feel like th- with you know with the NRF, you know, they're dealing with these mega like retailers. Right. And I think that this is working a little differently be, than it would for a smaller retailer because as far as a smaller retailer goes, there is no lower cost debit network per, per se, se right. because 85 to 90% of the cards are regulated now. Right. So whether it's chip and pin or chip and signature, if somebody wants to use their debit card, they can use their debit card and the, the, the merchant is going to pay the same either way. Right, right. But I think it sounds like... For like the uh, Macy's and the yes, Targets and, and Walmart. the Walmarts of the world. Yeah, and, and I think... I think it's an interesting point to make, too, just as a larger point that, you know, I think a lot of agents and ISOs in our industry don't understand or realize that, you know, in our industry, there's almost this misperception that interchange is set by the government or something. Right, right. It's, it's, a, pri- it's a fee from a private company. Exactly. Which is, in yeah. this case, would be Visa setting the fee and it's coming from a bank. And these are things that are negotiated. Right. And so mega, large, you know, huge retailers, they have negotiated lower rates for different things. And just as an aside, which is a, it's a very interesting aside, Walmart is not part of the NRF. Really? Yeah. 
I guess that actually doesn't surprise me. They're so large, they pretty much have their they own. They have their own thing. They don't Probably like to. Amazon has right? their you know, own. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, the report. Huh. So here's the conclusion. Quote, the setting of payment standards for topics such as authentication and tokenization should be migrated away from EMVCO to independent and neutral national or international standards setting bodies. EMVCO's ownership by the credit card companies has put profits ahead of security, driven up costs for businesses and consumers alike, and has left the U.S. with a fraud-prone payment card system, even as fraud has been reduced in the rest of the world. Hmm. So, you know, what is this I mean, all— you, you can't argue with that, I mean, as far as the— No. You know, no, I mean, really... that, that is true. I mean, uh, you know, how much is EMV to blame? I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, exactly. But, I, but, yeah. but I think what they're saying is, you know, if EMV were a neutral, you know, truly third party standard setting, sure, it might be different than what different. we're seeing today. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I guess I want to come, you know, come down to what does this mean for our, for agents and ISOs? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's even more evidence that merchants are just frustrated with the card brands and do what will do what it takes to create more and better competition, you know, and what that means is lower prices and less risk to their businesses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think there's just a growing frustration with card payment And I think it's a frustration that, you know, I, I've been covering this field for, you know, 20, 30 years now, and mm-hmm. it's always been a frustration, but it seems to really be coming to a crescendo, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Huh. Well, it'd be very interesting to see how it plays out. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field And we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Well, Patty, this is the fourth and final episode of my little mini-series on killer phone scripts. And it's been a killer series. Oh, well, thank you. So I I love it. I've really been enjoying it. Um, And so... Today, we're talking about getting commitment. Okay. So we talked about kind of the first 10 seconds. We talked about how to get around the gatekeeper. Right. Last week, we talked about what do we say as kind of a Mm follow-up. And at the end of this follow-up, we got a micro-commitment from them. Soft commitment. Soft commitment. Good word Mm -hmm. for it. So the idea is we presented them with some kind of value of, you know, our solution does X. Right. You know, and we made it very specific. Our solution for, you know, hair salons in Denver that are part of the Chamber of Commerce. Right. We have a solution for you that does X. If I can do X... Would you be interested in learning more about it? Right. That's kind of the idea. And that's not worded correctly, but you get the idea. Listen to last week's episode. So now what they're going to say usually here is they're going to ask a question here. Mm -hmm. Questions are great. Even if they ask the question in a way that sounds a little bit mean or off-putting, a question is a good thing here. What Mm -hmm. the, the bad thing is, no. (laughs) <laughs> right. You know, right. no, we're happy with what we have. No, we're not interested. No, thank you. Bye. <laughs> yes. That ends up being a little bit more challenging to get around, but I'm not going to talk about objections in this series. But the idea here is I want to talk about the people that are actually going to be interested. If you if you do your, your phone script correctly, 
the the majority of the people that move forward are actually going to be interested at this stage. Sure. And so they're going to ask you a question. Well, how is that possible? Or, well, what do you mean? Right. Or how does that work? Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you want to do is you want to treat any response as a question. Okay. Not as an argument. Right. Please right. not as an argument. Phone arguments when a salesperson, if you find yourself arguing with a prospect, you did something Forget wrong. It, you just blew it. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yep. So we want to treat every response as a question. And this is kind of comical. Again, I, I could tell so many stories here of me on speakerphone with groups of salespeople. I love mm-hmm. doing this in, in consulting sessions. And, um, you know, so many times where they, I see the salespeople having to like literally cover their mouth to keep from laughing because people will say something to me ridiculous like, you know, well, no, I told them before I wasn't interested in that. And I say, what a great question. Now, <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> it's like, that's not a question, you know. But I, you know, what a great question. You know, why are we calling you back? See, uh-huh. what I do is I uh-huh. rephrase it as a question. As a question. It's sure. a question. It has to be a question. Because if it's not a question, it's an objection. And I don't like objections. I'd rather deal with questions than objections. Sure. So I just take every objection and make it into a question, you know. Okay. No, mm-hmm. I told you before I wasn't interested. What a great question. What have we changed since we talked last? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Anything can be changed into a question. So right. the idea is we want to treat everything as a question. Okay? We want to avoid arguments at all costs. Now, the next question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? We want to get commitment. So are we trying to schedule an appointment to go out in the field and meet with them? Are we trying to get them on the phone with a closer? Are we trying to sell them over the phone? Okay, if we're trying to sell them over the phone, what's the next step? Are we trying right. to get a statement? Are we trying to schedule a demo? Like, So we obviously need to know what we're doing. That's really, really important. That's really important. So once we know what we're doing, then the middle step from where we are now, kind of the roadmap from where we are now to to the action or the commitment that we want to get is information exchange. Mm -hmm. So think about your bank account for a second. You know, your bank account, you make deposits. Right. And then you take money out. Right. You try to take more money out than you've deposited, you withdraw. You're in trouble. Yeah. You're, that's not good. That's not going to work. And in the same way with sales, if you try to get a commitment when you don't have enough trust, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. in the same way, you're going to be withdrawn and you're not going to get the money. You're not going to get, the, in this case, the commitment. Right. So you have to be very careful. Now, the interesting thing is for most of the commitments you're trying to get, the amount of information that you have to exchange back and forth is like very, very minimal. I'll give you two examples. The first example is an email address. Okay. So let's say somebody says to you, well, um, you know, uh, how would this work? Like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Wow, what a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Now, I don't want to take up too much of your time today. I mean, I just called you on the phone here. I know you're probably really busy. All right. How about I just shoot you an email with some information And that way you can look it over at your convenience. Is there a good email address for you where I could send that? Now, don't worry. We're not going to stop there. We are going to try to get more. But in this case, they are now giving us an email address. What is happening here? Well, what's happening is in their mind, they, number one, are saying, okay, this person is respectful of my time. I appreciate that. And then they're getting, you know, they're giving you an email address. So they're giving you information. Mm -hmm. Well, now I am a person that you just gave your email address to. Right. So if I have something else to say after that, you're probably going to continue listening. Mm-hmm. So now I might say something like, um, hey, thanks so much. I'm going to send that out to you today. And I tell you what I'll do for you um, it, with your permission. How about in a couple of days, I'm just going to ring you back and I'm going to make sure you got the email because I know you're going to have some questions when you read that about our XYZ program that I mentioned earlier. That's for pizza shops in Denver. Um, now, would four o'clock on Friday work for you or should I wait until Monday and call it 9 a.m.? 
Oh. Now we're going to end with that alternate advance. Mm -hmm. But what's happened is because we got the email address, they're actually much more likely right. you know, to sure. do this. Sure. The other option is you can ask them questions. So instead of getting an email address, you can ask them qualifying questions. So this approach, it uses something called scarcity. So the idea of scarcity is you may qualify for this program. You may not. Mm -hmm. But you really want to. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you do. I need to ask a couple questions to see if you qualify. Mm. Well, now you've got them really on the hook a little bit there. Right. And they're answering questions. Now, I will warn you, this is a... a I, there's no way I can really explain this all to you in one little, you know, audio snippet. But it's very challenging because the questions, each question has to be justified. Right. You know, and each question has to be something that's a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I would never ask, you know, I might say something like, um, yeah, you know, you, you might actually qualify for this program based on your business type and everything like that. Um, how much processing volume do you do in a given month? That's a terrible question. It's one I hear a lot because the merchant's like, number one, you didn't tell me why you need that information. Right. And number two, you're asking a very specific question that they may not want to answer. Right. Imagine rewording it like this. One thing we found is our solution really works best with established businesses that do a lot of processing volume. So if I could ask you, I'm assuming you process more than $5,000 in credit card volume in a given month. Am I right? Uh-huh. Okay. You see how different that question is? Sure. How much more likely is the business owner to answer that question than they are the first one? Like sure. 50 times more likely. Right. Because you've justified it. I need to make sure you're a good fit based on your volume. And secondly, you've asked a yes or no question. Do you do more than X? And they're like, okay, that makes sense. He needs to make sure I do more than this amount. And mm -hmm. he's just, and all he's asking is, do I do more than that? He's not asking how much. Right, right. So they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we do a lot more than that. Oh, okay, great. And then maybe you can ask him another question, right? Um, and again, I don't know what that'd be. Maybe it's a, a maybe it's a transactional question. And so you say, you know, um, we find out that our solution, it's you know, adding value every time you're swiping a card. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming that you're doing a lot of transactions every month, probably even more than a hundred transactions a month or five hundred or whatever. Right. Things like that where they're like yes or no. You're now getting that same micro commitment, just like with the email address. Mm -hmm. They're sharing information, and it's like, why did they share that information with you? Because they want to see if they qualify. Right. So now, of course, at the end of that, now you can say what you're going to say about qualification. So now you would say something like, well, hey, based on that information, I actually think that you would qualify for our program, but I definitely want to check all of this out. So let me do this. I'm going to shoot you an email. Mm -hmm. And then let's have a follow-up phone call when you have a little bit more time and I can do the demo of our unit or, you know, whatever, right? Right. And right. then you're going to do your alternate advance. So you've got that micro commitment. Now you're going to get the final commitment, which is because you just gave me that information, I see that you qualify. Now let's take the next step, which is a demo or whatever. Right, right. So I think the final tip I would give Patty on all this is, you know, people on the phone, they generally try to accomplish either too little or too much. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the too much tends to be the, the more biggest. prevalent. They yeah. do, and it's like, look, you you know, you need a sales process on the phone. You're not going to close somebody. Very likely, you're not going to close them on the first call. Of course not. Right. So the idea here is, now if it's a lead that came in that's interested, maybe there. But mm -hmm. even then, you've got to go step by step in this process. Think strategically about it. Make your script. You know what's funny? The people that sound the most scripted are the people that don't have a script. Huh. Yeah, I could see that. Sure, because they're kind of fumbling, right? They're fumbling, and right. they don't know what they're talking about. Or the people that have a script and they haven't memorized it. You Ooh, know, that's even worse. Even worse. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Both of them are terrible. Neither one works. But, but the idea is, if you have a script and you've literally memorized the script to the point where you've memorized pieces of it, I usually give teams like this a team I was talking about that I just did consulting for. Mm -hmm. um, I gave them two different openings, two different follow-ups, 
three different closing techniques. You memorize all of these building blocks because and then you can each call is different. Them around. Yeah, right, sure. everybody is different. Their personality is a little different. You may go in one direction with one and then right. a different one, but you've got to memorize the components and then you can deliver them with polish. And you know your emotions sound right. You don't sound desperate. You know what you're gonna say. You're not worried about what you're gonna say, and it, that's just gonna sound so much better. So there's your killer phone scripts. Hopefully you'll use that and have great results with it. I wish you awesome success on the phones. And I think that was a killer mini-series. Well, Thank thanks, Patty. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.